Good morning, church. The scripture passage this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 962. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And as you turn there, this is the end of this letter. It has a ring of authenticity as you read it. And Paul ends by saying, anyone who has no love with the Lord has accursed as our strong words. But I pray that as we read this together, or as you hear me read it, that your love for the Lord will be increased. For this is God's love letter to us, and we love because he first loved us. 1 Corinthians 16. If you could please rise in honor of this reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no, there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. 
You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your holy word. And now we are asking for the Holy Spirit to come to accompany the preaching of your word. That hearts may be touched, that lives may be transformed, that we might come away having worshipped you, sitting under your word in faith and obedience. We pray all this for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, this morning we are wrapping up our series in 1 Corinthians. If you've been with us, uh, you probably noticed we titled this entire sermon series, A Letter to a Troubled Church. And that's been an apt description of this very young church in the first century. And based on what we learn from the timelines that you find in the book of Acts, by the time Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, the church could have only been a few years old, uh, four, five years maybe. It's a young church. And yet, even though it's only a few years old, it's already plagued with so many problems. Now, I know that that, that might sound discouraging, but if you think about it, if you think about it, it's actually encouraging. Because if a church whose founding pastor is the Apostle Paul himself, if even that church had to face big obstacles and had to deal with unhealthy factions forming within it and divisive people stirring up trouble within it, then why are we surprised when such things happen to us? I mean, why would we think that we as a church would be exempt from all of that trouble? I think there's a tendency for for Christians to grow disillusioned with the contemporary church, with what they experience in in their church life today, and they begin to speak wistfully of the early church. Oh, man, you know, you, you, you hear people say, man, if we could just go back to the early church, right? If we could just, you know, go back to doing church like the early Christians. That's what they long for. They, they, they long for this, this return to an age of innocence where the, when the church was pristine, when it was unspoiled by, by institutional power or it was free of hypocrisy, free of deceit. That's the basic assumption that a lot of people have about the early church. Well, after studying 1 Corinthians, I think it becomes apparent that there never was an age of innocence. And there never was a time when the church was free from hypocrisy or free from infighting or free from divisiveness. I think the church of Corinth demonstrates that even if you have the greatest evangelist of all time leading all of you to faith, and you have the greatest pastor and the greatest Christian church planter founding your very church, you're still going to have problems. You're still going to deal with competing factions Divisive people, perverse immorality spreading about, and of course false teaching infiltrating the church. Because, friends, every church, no matter the age, no matter the era, every church is made up of sinners. Now, redeemed and converted sinners, but nonetheless, sinners in the flesh. And so we are 
bound to fail in spectacular ways, just like we have seen for the church of Corinth. Now look, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to say that you, should ne- you shouldn't hold the church or our church to a high standard. I'm not saying that you should never feel disappointed with the church. I'm just saying you shouldn't be surprised if you are disappointed. But you shouldn't lose hope either. You know, I hear a lot of talk these days about the, uh, the de-churching of our society, right? That, that, you know, we, we, uh, let's all talk about how we've been seeing this significant rise in the de-churched. That's referring to those who have left the church, those who have disassociated themselves from organized religion. And it largely seems to be a reaction to perceived problems that are found in the church that uh, many of them have been uh, exposed more recently in the past years. So many professing Christians are deeply disillusioned, deeply disappointed with their churches. But as the saying goes, disappointment is the gap between expectation and reality. What if What if our expectation of the church has not been grounded in reality? What if what's needed is a more realistic perception of the church? I think, friends, once we realize that we've been treating, excuse me, we've been treating the church like it was a a museum for saints, when in reality, it's a hospital for sinners. Once we realize the misperception we have, once we readjust our perception, then I think things begin to change. We realize that, you know, we haven't been fair with with our perception. It's not realistic to assume this is a museum for saints. And that's when we begin to readjust things, readjust our expectations. And I think that's when we begin to grow in patience, begin to grow in long-suffering whenever we have to deal with disappointing churches and deal with disappointing Christians. And that's really what's encouraged me as we've been studying this letter. It's really helped ground my own expectations for our church. And I'm reminded that the same sinful tendencies that were found in Corinth can easily manifest among us. The same problems could arise in our church, threatening our peace and our unity. But friends, I'm also reminded that the same underlying solution to all of that remains the same as it was back then as it is today. The solution to our problems is love. And I know that 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 sounds a bit trite. It sounds a bit, you know, cliche. But it was Paul's whole point, especially in chapter 13. Love truly is the answer. And he returns to that theme here at the conclusion of his letter in chapter 16. Now, I know at first glance, this last chapter just seems like a hodgepodge of instructions and, and greetings and, and, and travel plans. It, it doesn't seem like it has any overarching theme to the chapter. But I think a theme begins to emerge if we take verse 14. And I hope you look down in, in your Bibles. Look at verse 14 and take that as the key verse. And you'll notice that that, that verse is striking the exact same note that Paul has been ringing throughout this letter. Listen to verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. 
Church, if love is the motivating force behind all of our actions, and, 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 and not just any kind of love, but of course we're talking about the love of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if that kind of love begins to characterize our community, well then we do well. Now, we won't be perfect, and we're still probably going to disappoint each other at times, but we won't lose hope. We won't lose hope for the church because we'll have love. So as we walk through these concluding remarks uh, here in chapter 16, I do want to take verse 14 as the theme verse. And what we see in our text are instructions from Paul for how a church can practically love each other and love the wider body of Christ. Here we're going to see five instructions on how to love that really stand out. And I want to go through each of them briefly. If you want to look inside your bulletin, you'll see an outline, and the five instructions are listed there for us. The first instruction for how to love is by giving to meet the needs of fellow Christians. And that's the very subject of verses 1 to 4. Giving to meet the needs of fellow Christians. You see, here Paul's preparing them to participate in a global relief effort where churches are being mobilized to help other churches financially. Now, I know some background context is, is going to be needed here. So uh, basically, during his third and final missionary journey, Paul was putting together a large-scale aid package that was dedicated to the church in Jerusalem and to other churches in the surrounding region of Judea. Now, we're not sure the cause for their financial hardship, but they were, the believers in these churches were definitely facing some significant financial hardship. It, it could have been a famine. Uh, that was actually the reason behind a prior relief effort that we learn about in Acts chapter 11. Or it could have just been due to persecution. For whatever reason, the church and churches in that region, Christians, are suffering. And the key feature of this relief effort is that Paul was targeting churches predominantly in Gentile regions, and he was mobilizing those churches to give aid to Christians in predominantly Jewish churches. Now, this was a very important and very personal project for Paul for, for two reasons. First, this collection for the saints, he saw it as a tangible act of gospel charity. A tangible act of gospel charity. It was a tangible way to love others as Christ has loved us. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. That's the gospel. Jesus being full of glory, eternally with the Father, humbled himself, made himself a servant taking on the form of, of, of a servant coming in the flesh and dying for us, even dying a death on the cross so that we might be forgiven of our sins and that we might be recipients of his inheritance, that he might share his riches with his people. Friends, that's the gospel, and that's, 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 that's what gospel charity looks like, Jesus exemplifying it perfectly for us. Well, the Jerusalem church is the first church 
And they receive Jesus' charity. And they begin to exemplify this same spirit of gospel charity. If you read in the book of Acts, in chapter 4, we're told that there was not a needy person in their church. Not a single church member with any financial needs. Why? Because those who had more were more than willing to share with those who had little. That is what characterized the Jerusalem church. Now, at this time, though, the entire Jerusalem church had little. And the entire church was in need. And so now it was time for other churches to step up and to display that same gospel charity. But not only was this collection going to be an act of gospel charity, second, this collection for the saints in Jerusalem was going to be a tangible expression of gospel unity. This was a way to show love for Christ and love for the gospel and how the gospel brings together a disparate people in Christ Jesus. Remember, Paul was specifically asking for Gentile Christians to step up and to meet the needs of Jewish Christians. And that was going to be a beautiful display of gospel unity in spite of all of their cultural differences, in spite of all of their historic hostility, they were going to show that they are one in Christ. In Romans chapter 15, he explains that since Gentile Christians were the recipients of spiritual blessings that flowed from their Jewish Christian brethren, in the, in the, in the sense that it was the Jewish Christians who first came to Gentile territory and brought the gospel, now it was a chance for the Gentile Christians to be of service to the saints in Jerusalem by means of pouring out material blessings upon them. Paul says it's only fair. This is how, this is how it works within the church and how we care for each other and we share with each other. So that's why bringing this, this project of bringing aid to the saints in Jerusalem was so important to the Apostle Paul, especially him being a, a, an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, let's look back at verse 1, and let's look at the specific instructions he gives to the Corinthian church regarding this collection. Verse 1, I'll read it again. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put, aside, put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Let me make four observations about how they were to co conduct their giving. And I'll, I'll try to draw out some brief applications for us. First, notice how their giving was to be conducted regularly. Every Sunday. On the first day of every week. That's Sunday. And that's when, of course, they gathered as the church on the Lord's Day. When they gather as the church, they are to give. And the whole point is for this to, 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 to form into a regular habit for the believers. The spiritual practice of giving shouldn't be erratic. It shouldn't be merely occasional. We should be giving regularly. And according to Paul, it's a good practice to give weekly. And this is why, this is why most churches throughout church history have incorporated an offertory in their Sunday worship every first day of the week. And that's exactly why we do it here in our church, every Sunday, we are trying to preserve an ancient practice and at the same time reminding ourselves every single week that our giving is worship. That's the first observation. Second, we see that their giving 
was to be conducted systematically. It was to be conducted regularly and systematically. Paul says, each of you, so he's expecting every single one of the believers in Corinth to receive this instruction and to thoughtfully participate by, he says, putting something aside each week and storing it up. Now, it's likely that each of them weren't individually storing up a personal stash in their own homes. It was likely there was some kind of general collection within the church on those Sundays. Because Paul's whole point is that when he finally does arrive to Corinth, he doesn't want to make another appeal. He doesn't want to have to go around collecting house to house. He just wants one collection to already be ready for him to, to receive. So what does this mean for us today? Does this mean we have to put funds aside each week to give to the church during our offertory? Well, that is why it's there for you. But please, friends, don't look at this as a matter of law. Don't don't look at this as a matter of of some strict rule. The point here is for you to come up with your own system for giving. The goal is for you to have a plan where you are giving regularly. It could be weekly. It could be monthly, bi-monthly, quarterly. You know, I, I, I think just, you know, what I would encourage is probably try to refrain from putting all of your giving off until the end of the year and just giving this one huge lump sum right before the tax deadline, which is, I know, something that people have in mind. But if that's the urgency for you, if you're like, oh, no, December 31st is coming, I better give, that says a lot about your motivation for giving. Having a system in place where you are regularly giving helps make it clear that your giving is ultimately about God. It's about others. It's not about a tax credit. So find a system for yourself on how you can give on a regular basis. Third, notice how their giving was to be conducted proportionally. Paul says to put something aside and to store it up as he may prosper. The whole point is that we are to give according to our means. And if God graciously causes us to prosper and our financial means are to increase, well then we can increase whatever we are putting aside proportionally to that increase in our income. That's what Paul means. That's that's why when we think about giving, I don't think it's very helpful to think strictly in terms of a tithe, you know, a 10% of your income. Now, I think a tithe is a good thing. I think it's a good starting point if you're beginning your practice of regular giving. But Christians often treat the tithe as a ceiling, Like, that's going to be the max, the most they're ever going to give. They think, once I reach that, I'm done. But in Scripture, a tithe would really have been seen as the floor. It's the starting point. So I'd encourage you to give at least a tithe of your income. And if the Lord does graciously cause you to prosper more, well, then you have the joyful privilege of being able to give more, of exceeding your tithe. And fourth, friends, fourth observation. It's important to note how their giving was to be conducted freely, without compulsion, without shaming each other into action. And that's why Paul says he wants this entire collection to be completed. I want it done before I arrive. 
He did not want to directly oversee this collection because he knew that his presence, if he was there in person, it might put too much pressure on people to give to the collection. So he wants them to give and to give freely, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Brothers and sisters, I I know that in the past year or so, we have been challenging all of you to give in different ways and in significant ways. I know we've been, you know, last year we, we were challenging you to sponsor children in Vietnam through World Vision and the Chosen Project. You know, we were challenging you, of course, this whole year to donate towards the purchase and the renovation of the building next door. We've also just been just regularly challenging you to faithfully give of your offerings towards the ongoing ministries of our church. I know we've been asking you to dig deep. But I hope you recognize, friends, that all of this is motivated by love. Love of God. Love of people should be the driving force behind our generous giving. Love is the reason. Love, of course, is the answer. So that's the first instruction for how to love each other by generously giving to meet each other's needs. <clears throat> Excuse me. Here's a second. Love by showing hospitality to visiting Christians. This is what Paul mentions in verses 5 to 12. He's informing them of his upcoming travel plans. Because uh, you see, Paul is writing this letter from Ephesus, which in those days, the city of Ephesus was situated in the Roman province uh, of Asia. It was called Asia. Um, it's, you know, we still actually call it um, Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. And that's where he is. And he says he's going to stay there in Ephesus until Pentecost, which in the Jewish calendar is celebrated 50 days after the Passover. And the Passover is always uh, during the springtime. And so it was springtime as he's writing this letter. And when summer arrives, he plans to travel across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is essentially northern Greece. So if you you think about what Greece is today, the northern section is Macedonia. He wants to visit churches there, churches like Philippi, Thessalonica. And then after that, he wants to travel down to Achaia. That's the Roman province that is basically southern Greece. And this is where Corinth is. And he wants to stay with them in Corinth throughout the next upcoming winter. Then in verses 10 to 11... Paul gives them instructions to receive Timothy, his young disciple, to receive him with hospitality. He says he's on his way to Corinth. He's going to come to minister to you. He's going to come teach to you. So considering how Paul has already revealed to us that some in the church have rejected him in his apostleship, he's concerned that his young disciple might be similarly mistreated. And so that's why, listen to verse 11. He says, let no one despise him, Timothy. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So he's pointing out to the Corinthians that they have a perfect opportunity to show Christian love by showing Christian hospitality to a visiting Christian, a visiting brother in Christ. They certainly intended to show this kind of hospitality to another brother in Christ, to Apollos, whenever he comes to town. Because look, based on... On verse 12, it appears that the Corinthians had written to Paul in that previous letter they wrote to him. 
requesting for Apollos to make a visit. And Paul says he strongly encouraged Apollos to do so, but Apollos had his reasons not to go at this time, perhaps at a later opportunity. Now, if you're not, you don't remember who Apollos is, if, if, if you recall back in chapter 1, we were introduced to Apollos, and we were told there that some in the church were forming factions around certain personalities of church leaders, and some were rejecting the Apostle Paul and claiming instead to follow this man named Apollos. That makes, that context right there, remembering what happened in chapter 1, makes Paul's words here in, cha- in chapter 16, verse 12, all the more significant. Because apparently Paul was not threatened by Apollos' popularity. Like he did not see himself in competition with this brother, even though many in the church might have saw it that way. And they were competing, but Paul's like, I, I, I don't compete with him. He's my co-laborer in Christ. I mean, this is such a great example of a Christian putting aside ego and prioritizing instead the work of the gospel. And what a great example the Apostle Paul sets for us. But, friends, my goal here really is to point out how, from early on, notice how there is a common practice of churches receiving visiting Christians and showing them hospitality. Like church members back then would just open up their homes to to missionaries or to other Christian leaders with uh, itinerant ministries. And they're coming to town and they would house them. Paul could easily expect this kind of practice from the Corinthians because it was just common. It was common practice back then. But brothers and sisters, let's make sure this remains a common practice among us today. You know, we frequently have visiting pastors in town coming here for speaking engagements. And we have From time to time, our supported missionaries coming back from the mission field, coming back to Houston on furlough. And we also have Christian young people coming here to Houston for a few months during the summers on a a short internship. And all of these Christians would be in need of temporary housing. All of these believers would be greatly blessed by your hospitality. And so friends, if any of you are feeling moved to open up your home, to practice hospitality for people in these kinds of situations. So then please, just reach out to me. Reach out to any of the pastors and let us know of your interest. Let us know of your willingness to open up your home. And and we'll contact you. We'll let you know the next time we have visiting Christians uh, who are in this situation. When an opportunity arises, we'll connect you with those believers. So please, please do reach out to me. A third instruction, a third instruction here for how to love each other is by standing firm in gospel truths. Look at verse 13 with me. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Here Paul gives a general exhortation to be watchful, to be on constant alert. For what? What are we to to watch out for? Well, we are to watch out for anything that might make us waver in the faith or to stray from the truths of the gospel. That's why it's followed up with another exhortation to stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the gospel. Now, he goes on to say, act like men. Now, he's basically saying there, be courageous. 
That, that, that's really what he's communicating. He's saying, be strong and courageous, which if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you know that's a very common expression in the Old Testament, to be strong and courageous. And so, you know, as Paul is concluding his letter, he's recognizing that, you know, all of these major issues I've been bringing up in this letter, all of them stem from a rejection of gospel truth and an embrace, whether consciously or not, of pagan Greco-Roman values. The reason why the problems are, are here in this church is because they have not been standing firm and they've been awash with pagan values. I mean, just think back to all the problematic issues we've covered. There are actually 10 in total here in this letter. They were dividing over their allegiances to different church leaders. They were tolerating incest. They were bringing lawsuits against each other. They were excusing sexual immorality among them. They were confusing the role of sex in marriage. They were divided over the eating of food previously offered to idols. Their women were rejecting the wearing of head coverings. They were abusing the Lord's Supper. They were misusing spiritual gifts, and they were denying the future resurrection of the dead. Now, friends, of course, I don't have time to point out all of the various pagan values that are underneath the surface of each of those issues. But the whole point here is that if a church doesn't watch out, if it doesn't stand firm in the faith, if it's not strong and courageous to stand against the cultural tide of competing values and assumptions, that church will eventually be caught up in successive waves of troubling issues like we see in Corinth. Every church needs to familiarize itself with the contemporary cultural values that are assailing its own members. What are the particular competing worldviews or truth claims that are surrounding us today, that are undercutting the authority of Scripture, that are questioning the veracity of gospel truths? We need to identify those values. We need to identify those assumptions and to address them with God's word and to help each other to stand firm in the faith, to be strong and courageous, and not to be swept away with what the culture is, is pressing against us. And that, my friends, is why the Family Life Ministry has organized for us a conference on the first weekend of December titled Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. It's, it's going to be uh, uh, taught by a college friend of mine. I, I went to school with him, and he's a good man. He now runs a family life ministry uh, called Cross Life, and he's going to come, and he's going to address a, an array of contemporary issues related to sexuality and to gender. And he's going to help us to think Christianly about these tough topics. It's important for us, not just for defending truth. It's important for the sake of showing love. Again, friends, love of God, love of God's people is what motivates us to want to stand firm in the faith. So that's the third instruction. Fourth, fourth instruction that Paul gives for us for how to love as a church is by submitting to your leaders who are devoted to serving you. Submitting to your leaders who are devoted to serving you. That's the subject of verses 15 to 18. 
Paul mentions here the household of Stephanus. Now, this brother and his family members were actually the first ones in Corinth to convert to Christianity when Paul first came preaching the gospel. He actually said back in chapter 1, you might recall this name, back in chapter 1, he says that Stephanus and his family were some of the few believers that he recalls being uh, personally baptizing. So again, this is one of the first converts, and apparently he has matured in his faith, and he has now been appointed as a leader in the church, and he is devoted to serving the church. In fact, he, along with two other brothers, Fortunatus and Achaicus, have volunteered to travel all the way to see Paul, to go all the way to Ephesus to visit and bring that, the church's letter to him. So that, that letter he's been referencing is, is likely brought by these men. Um, and so Paul says how he appreciates their refreshing visit. And he's urging the church now to submit to these men and to their leadership and to give them the recognition that they deserve. That's his concluding exhortation for them. You see, Paul has no reservation here. He has no hesitation in calling Christians to submit to their church leaders. He's not worried about the misuse of power. He's not worried about the abuse of authority because the members of the church should only be appointing into positions of church leadership those who consistently exhibit a hard attitude that is, quote, devoted to the service of the saints. Church, if you are choosing church leaders who love to serve and who view service as a primary means of loving you, then you too can be subject to such as these with no reservation, no hesitation. Because you know that your leaders are here to serve you. And that's how you can return your love to them through your glad submission. Your submission to the pastors and the elders and the deacons of this church and your recognition of their calling to lead is a beautiful way to express your love to them. That attitude enables your leaders to lead with joy and not with groaning. And having joyful church leaders, brothers and sisters, that is to your advantage. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders. And submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them, your leaders, do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You would not benefit. You would not thrive under leaders who groan. You want leaders who are joyful and glad to be serving you. So return that love with a loving, glad submission. That's the fourth instruction. Now, the fifth and final instruction for how to love each other as a church is found for us in verses 19 to 23. We love by demonstrating affection towards each other in culturally appropriate ways. Showing affection in culturally appropriate ways. Now, in Paul's day, would have been through a holy kiss. Now, before he gets there, 
He wraps up by sending greetings from not just uh, the church in Ephesus where he's at, but other churches in Asia. He also mentions here Aquila and Prisca, uh, and, Prisca uh, and the church that meets in their house. Now this couple, if you're familiar with the New Testament, they show up a number of times in Acts, in Paul's other letters. They are uh, fellow tent makers with Paul, and they are some of his hugest supporters of his ministry to the Gentiles. Now, uh, in verse 21, uh, we read, I, Paul write this greeting with my own hand. Now, what's happening here is that Paul, at this moment, is actually taking the pen in his own hand, and he is writing out these last few concluding sentences. You see, it was common practice in those days for letters to actually be transcribed by a secretary. So this entire time, Paul has been, has been verbally you know, uh, 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 speaking to a secretary, and someone else has been writing the letter. And that's how most of his letters were written. Only until the end of the letter does Paul actually pick up the pen, and he signs off with his own personal greeting. And in this personal greeting with his own hand, he expresses the importance of loving the Lord and longing for the Lord's coming and praying for his love and for the Lord's grace to be with them all after they finish listening to this letter be read aloud to them at church. Because that's how Paul's letter would have been heard. You know, it's not like everyone's going around getting a personal copy of it, reading. No, they would have come to church in Corinth and someone would have read the entire letter out to them. And, God, and Paul says, now I want my love and God's grace to be with you as you leave this place. It's a benediction, really. Now what I want to draw our attention to is verse 20. Verse 20, Paul encourages them to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, that's understood to be a simple kiss on the cheek. Uh, it was a culturally appropriate expression of brotherly affection in those days. And, and actually, it still is in, in many cultures today. But it's not usually understood that way, I think, in our context uh, here in our culture. And especially post-COVID, I, I know many people are hesitant to, to even shake hands, let alone to share a hug or, or a kiss. So I know we have to exercise judgment and sensitivity. But I think the basic principle remains the same. If we are a spiritual family, like if we are truly brothers and sisters in Christ, then let's love each other like family. And let's express the kind of affection that would be appropriately expected between members of the same family. So if that means a hug or, or maybe, maybe a side hug, uh, if that means, you know, a handshake, fist bump, high five, you know, it's whatever is normal, whatever is considered appropriate within our families and within our culture. Church, let's not be shy to do that. Let's, let's not shy away from, from demonstrating affection for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because, I mean, as we were reminded back a chapter ago, in last week's message, in chapter 15, we were reminded that we are embodied creatures who will live forever in resurrected bodies on a renewed earth. So that means physical touch will forever remain a way for us to express love and affection for each other. It's the way God made us. How he designed us to interact and to engage with each other. And so let's be willing 
to embody our affection for each other in culturally appropriate ways. Now, if you recall, if you've been here long enough, pre-COVID, I used to stand back there after service on the Sundays that I preach, shaking everyone's hands. Now, some of you even back then were open to hugs, and I appreciated all of that. Now, I know since the pandemic, some of you are less comfortable with physically touching others. And I want to be sensitive to that. And so for now, for now, I'm still going to wait for you to extend your hand for a handshake or for you to reach out for a hug. And I, I think I'm even okay if you want to initiate a holy kiss. But, you know, just, just keep, keep it on the cheek. Cheek, please. Um, or, you know, you know, my hand if you I don't know. Um, but I, w- I want to say right now, I want to say right now in front of all of you, right here, right now, don't be shy. I personally am open to receiving your expressions of brotherly love. Even if it's just going to be a polite wave for now, I get it. But I, I, I want to receive your brotherly affection because we're the church. We're the church. And so let's make a point of showing our love to each other as a spiritual family. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this entire series going through 1 Corinthians and reminding us about the challenges of being a church, the challenges of loving each other. But that, Lord, is what you have called us to do. And I know all the, all the problems, all the issues that we may face as a church can really be resolved if we were to love each other, if love was behind all that we do. And so may the love of Christ fill our hearts and may the love of Christ be expressed in tangible ways in our community. May we show love and affection for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ in one spiritual family. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.